Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Stephen James, and you have found the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Uh, today's guest is Brian Bird. During his 30-year career in Hollywood, Brian has written and produced um, nearly two dozen films and 250 episodes of network television. He's a founding partner with Michael Landon Jr. of Believe Pictures, most recently responsible for four seasons of the hit Hallmark Channel original TV series, When Calls the Heart. Brian's film work and producing credits include The Case for Christ, 2017, The Heart of Man in 2017, and Paramount Pictures Captive in 2015. Brian's a leading voice in the exploding faith-based media marketplace and has spoken widely in the role of faith in the arts, including lectures at Pepperdine, Chapman, Biola, and many others. He is, the, he is on the faculty at Stevens College in the Screenwriting MFA program. His awards uh, range from independent film festivals to faith-based film festivals to Telly Awards and Christopher Awards and his widely read professional blog, BrianBird.net, serves as a lively exchange in the art and craft of storytelling. And I should say that I like on, how on his website he adds that beyond his professional achievements, he considers his top productions to date to be his 36-year marriage to his wife, Patty, and his five children. So that's fantastic. And, Brian, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, awesome to be with you, buddy. Now, I think our paths first crossed a, a few years ago when you were doing the keynote address at a writer's conference that I attended, and I remember thinking, this guy's approach is similar to some, some of the stuff that I've tried to do where you address big questions in your stories, not necessarily you're not trying to beat someone over the head with a specific message, but instead say, we're going to ask big questions and we're going to allow you to pursue those uh, you know, through the story. And I thought, this guy's kind of got a kindred, kindred heart to what I'm trying to accomplish in my books. <laughs> exactly right, man. I, I, uh, I love what you do in your, in your novels and, and uh, some of your other projects and, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're all uh, striving to share what we believe about the universe, you know, in our work. And, you know, Sam Goldwyn famously once said, uh, if you want to send a message, send a telegram. Don't do it in the movies. But I disagree with him completely. Every project, every novel, every story, every movie is about worldview. And the writer and the director and the people involved in, in, in the film and the storytelling are all, are all you know, striving to, to bring their worldview to bear in the story how much you do that is a different that's about execution and about uh nuance and not about turning what you're doing into propaganda but everybody's worldview leaks into their into their creative work i have i believe that 100 <laughs> percent recently my, my wife and i were watching a, a, an episode of supergirl and in the episode, there was this um, storyline that dealt with global warming and climate change, and it was we we 
you know, whatever people's views are on that, I think there's, you know, pretty strong consensus that the climate is changing. But just the way that things were portrayed, we just started laughing because they were like, we have to save the planet. And the only ones <laughs> who are wacko are those who are deniers and they're having a conference. I don't know what it was, but we were just <laughs> laughing. Like, it was so over-the-top propaganda-ish that it distracted us from the story. Like, all we wanted to do is sit and watch and engrossing episode, you know, Supergirl, and just enjoy yes. it as a family. Uh, right. And it ended up being almost comical in the propagandish uh, aspect of what they were doing. So, so I think, well, yeah. Bad, can, yeah, bad, bad storytelling is propaganda, right? Yeah. Uh, good storytelling is weaving truths about, you know, life and, and humanity and the universe and and potentially the creator uh, into your storytelling, but doing it in such a way that it's organic and not pounding people over the head. And just like a bad episode of Supergirl, you have, you know, well-intentioned people doing propaganda faith kinds of projects as well. And, yeah, you know, that's no help to anybody. It's just sort of uh, leading you around by the nose and nobody, you know, we, that's not good storytelling. That's, uh, that's, you know, paint by the numbers. I know over, over the years we've met for coffee or pizza a couple of different times, at, in, at, you know, whenever our paths have crossed. And one of the things that I appreciated as we've talked is just this passion that you have for creating uh, films and television shows that a family can sit down and watch together. And I know you've brought that up to me a couple of times, and I thought, you know what, you're right, there aren't that many shows where you can basically get your kids together and say, we're going to watch this show. Um, because it, it, And I think there was a phrase that you used. It's almost like this um, descent into darkness. In other words, that people are saying, we need readers, not readers, but we need viewers. We need an audience. How can we do that? We can be more extreme than the last show that was on. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I think that the marketplace forces, uh, at least in the film and TV business, um, are in, I agree, this sort of race to the bottom. And if you can picture a pie, right, that used to be sliced into, you know, four or five pieces back in the day, um, all the big networks or all the big studios back in the day, but now there are 100 or 200 slices of pie. And each one of those little slices now is fiercely competitive, trying to steal market share away from the next slice of pie. I believe, this is my analysis of having worked in this business for 30 years, that if you, they believe if you want to take market share away from your neighbor, the only way to do it is to get louder, to get noisier, to get more sensational, to get sexier, to get edgier to get darker, more cynical, because it's, but because controversy, they believe, equates with box office or, or ratings, right, TV ratings. Yeah. And if everybody does that, it's this incredible race to the bottom, right? We're just, just going over a cliff into sort of darkness and depravity. And some of that is really good storytelling. I'm not yeah. arguing for a second that there's not really powerful storytelling going on. You know, as it examines sort of a dark night of the soul of, you know, of, of humanity. Sure. Some of these kind of cautionary tales are riveting uh, to watch and, and deeply profound. But 
if nobody is looking out for a family audience, we're get, we get what we deserve. We're going to, we're, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but some of my best memories of my childhood were watching television with my family. I and did it. I did the same. Thing. Yeah, we had a, you know, we would, and then we would talk about it. We would enjoy it, and then we'd talk about it. What, you know, what, what's the takeaway from that episode of TV or whatever? And that doesn't exist anymore. We have our our families are fractured into separate venues on their tablets or their iPhones or their, their smartphones or whatever, everybody watching their own content from all these little slices of pie. The, we have lost something in our culture. We have that, communi- that communal experience, that family experience of, of sharing that time together is gone. Hmm. Part of the reason is the technology, of course. We have the ability to be flexible and to watch and to time shift our viewing patterns anywhere we want and any way we want. But part of it is that the content isn't there. Nobody is making family program anymore. Every network used to have at least one hour devoted to family programming every night of the week, as little as maybe 15 years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't. And in this big race to the bottom, you know, we're we're all basically being uh, saturated in in dark and cynical. <laughs> and uh, I find that deeply disturbing. I think it's a loss for the culture. Again, yeah. I'm not saying diversity is not awesome and that there's something for everybody out there, but there's not really something for families any longer. It doesn't exist. But you, you have guys to watch. Have found a niche with your show. I we think. have, we have, yeah. we absolutely have. It's it's very much sort of in the in the vein of Little House on the Prairie in terms of the tone of the piece. It, it's 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 hopeful. It's aspirational. It, it it sends great messages about the positive part of humanity as opposed to the dark side. Uh, or if we expose the dark side, we sort of show the reverse. You know, we we show the we show the opposite of that in terms of you know the good side, and people are just are just eating it up. We're we're being watched by upwards of five million people a week on the Hallmark Channel, which is you yeah. know a, a smaller cable network, but it's it's owning the ratings. Our our ratings are higher than a lot of the shows on the Fox network now. Yeah. And uh, so it's growing. People are, are loving it. There's a there's this group of of super fans that call themselves <laughs> Hardies. The show is called When Calls the Heart. The super fans call themselves Hardies, like Trekkies, but they are <laughs> Trekkies they are Trekkies on steroids and they're incredible. They're it's a community. Uh that is meeting and they're having Hardee's parties all over the nation <laughs> I love uh, it. on a week, weekly basis. It's almost like church. And, and the reason is not because I think we do a good show, but I'm not, but the show is, you know, is, you know, we, we do it on, um, on modest resources and right. <clears throat> we do our best to, to make it as good as we can, but it's because there's nobody, it's food for starving people. That's, that's the best food. Mm analogy i have for it nobody is providing these folks food many of them are cutting their cords right because 
because of all this other, you know, darkness on on the on the TV, you know, dial, and they're they're cutting their cords, and now they're coming back because somebody's offering them food, and that's the easiest way that I can can state this is that we're we're pro- providing food for starving people, and it's working. Now, many of the projects you've you've done have all have dealt with matters of faith and yet you've told me in the past that you never felt blackballed or anything like that from Hollywood is Hollywood right. looking for more spiritual or faith-based stories well, what's your take on that look look there's no conspiracy to you know destroy the family the only conspiracy that exists in Hollywood is the conspiracy to make money <laughs> and just just like it is at IBM or GM or Apple or Lifeway Christian bookstores, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, they need to show a, a profit. They need to have a bottom line that is dollars and cents driven. Now, the decision makers, they bring their worldview to the table. I can't deny that. The gatekeepers, the buyers, those, if those people come with a worldview that is prone to sort of dark and cynical – that's the kind of stuff they're going to want, right, and that they're going to buy. So to the degree that people are influencing their decisions by what they believe, uh, yes, you could say that there's sort of a, a decline in, in uh, uh, you know, providing content to family, to family viewers. But um, what I've discovered is that they just want, you know, I, nobody has ever said, "Oh, well, you're you're a person of faith. Well, you 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 can't work with us. You can't yeah. you can't be involved in us. If you're good at what you do, you could be a Martian, who a, 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 an LDS Martian or a Buddhist, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> alien from some other you know planet. They wouldn't care." They wouldn't care what color you are, or what faith you are, as long as you're good at what you do. You have to be a good, quality, excellent storyteller committed to doing the best work possible. You can find your way in the business in, in Hollywood by, by having those skills and developing you know, those, those personal assets. But in terms of faith content, they're hungry to make money. If faith content makes money, they'll put more of it on the air, right? Now, yeah. this, these marketplace forces that I was tell, talking about earlier, those are kind of blind, I believe. They're, it's like nobody's saying, oh, how can we eliminate all family programming? Yeah. It's this race to the bottom that nobody really realizes, I, I think. You know, I, yeah. I think it's just the market sort of run away. It's a runaway train. And uh, – but when in the cases where we're seeing success, when our show, When Calls the Heart, is being seen by 5 million people on a small cable network, that screams success. That, that's a news story. And other people are taking notice of that. Netflix is now carrying our first uh, three seasons across the world. And they'll be adding our fourth season within months. And it's gaining a, it's gaining an even bigger following internationally now because of 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 Netflix so they like it 
they're hungry. Netflix is even talking about adding uh, more faith content to their to their roster of stuff. They're actually inviting people like me and you to come in and and pitch ideas to them uh, for content that is going to you know come from sort of a faith worldview. That doesn't mean it has to be preachy or propagandistic, but it, and, and it needs to be good storytelling. Yeah, but it, there's a big audience for it. Right. It clearly there's a big audience for it. And when people show up either on television or in the movie theaters and plop down their their dollars, um, that speaks volumes. I, I always t- tell, you know, family, you know, people that want more family and faith content, don't stay home. Use, you know, practice the law of patronage. If you want more, if you want more reward the risk takers if they lose money why would they ever do it again yeah right they're taking big risks to put this content in in your laps if you don't patronize it if you don't reward them why would they ever do it again it's a really easy math formula (laughs) for (laughs) success in this in this world yeah no i've um i've noticed that some people um will just you know, some reviewers or people of faith that review sites and so on will, you know, warn people away from this movie or that movie or, or this show or that show. But w- when something comes out that, you know, is is great storytelling, like some of the stuff that you've done, then, you know, let's, you know, promote it regardless support of it. if, yeah, support yeah. it. So, you know, one of the yeah, thoughts I that I never, had. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on. I was just going to say I would never encourage anybody to patronize something that wasn't any good. Right? right? If it's mediocre, I'm not going to tell you to spend your money on the mediocre just because it has a good heart or it has right. good intentions. Um, you know, we people of faith need to practice excellence. All of the great, um, you know, art and history was created, you know, by during the Renaissance, was sponsored by the church, Hmm. right? And patronized by people in the church or leaders in the church. And, you know, if that's the case, if all the great art and history sort of came out of that consensus, then we need to be doing, we need to be setting the table. People of faith need to be setting the table for, you know, everybody else at this point to me. You know, all creators and creatives human beings in my view are made in the image of the author of the universe anyway as the author of all things and so we're all that valid you know creators some of us understand a connection to god others don't but that doesn't mean they're not gifted people who are imbued with these these talents by the creator so we need to be striving for excellence. Don't patronize something that's mediocre. Patronize things that you believe in, that you trust, that are really, you know, uh, that scream excellence to you and, and, and lift your soul. Um, so, I, that, that, so that's all I want to say about that. We, we need to support good content wherever it exists, in great novels like the ones you read, in the projects that, you know, I hope I can continue to do in my, during, in my career, we need to support those and show the power brokers that there's money, there's gold in them hills, right? 
because they'll they'll say yes. Let's do more then. <laughs> yeah, and, and I like yeah. Solve that I like problem. the emphasis on I like your emphasis on excellence. You know, um, you know, some people would say, oh, I don't go to the whatever. Let's just say Christian films because right. they're preachy. Let's just say cause you hear kind of this sort of thing sometimes, or or faith based or inspirational because it's preachy or has a message or something like that. Um, but what right. what you're saying is let's produce stuff that's so great storytelling and asks big questions and addresses important issues that people say, yeah, I don't really care who produced it, you know, or who wrote it. I want right. to see it because it's a great story and it. It's impactful, and it makes right. me think of your most recent movie, uh, The Case for Christ. I mean, it's it's garnered excellent reviews across the board from both critics and from audiences, reviewers and audiences alike. And so one of the things I wanted to ask, you know, pick your brain, why do you think this movie has resonated so well with so many reviewers who, well, would typically not <laughs> be giving the thumbs right. up to a movie that addresses issues of faith as openly as this one does. Right, right. Well, look, I I really believe in tr- telling true stories. I think telling redemptive true stories is uh, one of the most powerful ways to tell a story because the audience is going along for the ride with a fellow human being that actually lived it, Right. And so yeah. you, the audience puts themselves in the shoes of that, that protagonist or that hero and on that quest that they're going through. And they can relate. They can say, what if, what if it was me? What if, that, what if I was in, those, in that man's shoes or that woman's shoes? What if I was going on that journey? And you can kind of relate. Fiction is lovely and beautiful and is the, you know, it's, it's the, the genesis of, of all the great storytelling of all time came from these great epic fiction, you know, poems and stories uh, sure. in humankind. So I'm not, I'm not for a second saying, you know, fi- that fiction can't do that as well and take people on these amazing journeys. But when somebody knows that there's been a true story uh, that's being depicted in a film, I think you get, I don't know, I think you get a little bit of an edge <laughs> with the audience and with the critics because – what we depict in the case for Christ happened, right? We, we're just, you know, don't blame us if you don't like it. This was what happened. Or if yeah. you do like it, you like it because you can relate to it, right? There's a yeah. universal quality about every, every journey. And I dare say, say, you know, every human being asks the great existential questions. Are we alone in the universe? Is there a God? Is, you know, what happens to us after we die? I don't think a single human being never asks those questions. Right. So those great sort of universal existential questions uh, are, are something everybody asks. And I think that that's why we got so much grace in the marketplace, you know, from both critics and, and audiences. It's just a compelling gutsy, authentic, raw, true story that we told about a big city Pulitzer Prize nominated journalist from Chicago who decided to try to debunk Christianity because he was trying to save his marriage. His wife had become a Christian. They were happy atheist they were a happy atheist couple. His wife became a Christian because she had her own existential doubt. 
and he believed she had been, you know, swallowed up by a cult <laughs> and yeah. was trying to save her. So there's a the hero's quest. You know, there's a love story. There's a deep love story where this man is trying to save his family, trying to save his wife from her delusions. And in the process, he goes on this deep dive in the into the research, trying to debunk her faith in order to save her. And realizes at the end of the day that he can't debunk the faith. In fact, there's so much evidence there that he didn't realize that it would take more faith for him to remain in his atheism than it would be to assent to what his wife had found first. And that's and it's just an honest love story, true story, and and kind of a big city journalism story that we're telling in this in this film. And I think it speaks a lot to your writing and also just the filmmaking that people, regardless of their background or religious upbringing, are connecting with this story. So right. whether they're people of faith or Christians or skeptics or whatever it might be, they're saying, okay, this feels like an honest story and it's, a, you know, it's, it's based on this, these true events that happened and I can, I can connect right. with it. So, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it becomes it, if it's true, it's not propaganda. That that's yeah. the other the other out that you know I'm able to to have when I'm telling a true a redemptive true story. It's that yes, there may be faith in this story, but it's just part of the story. It's part of the fabric of of the story, and so it's not propaganda. I'm just telling the true story. Take it, take it or leave it. Uh, but. And and to be honest, Stephen, I think we all are telling these stories throughout, you know, human history, because most of the stories that we tell, and, and even on a fictional basis, have some basis in reality, right? They're 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 composites of our personal human experience. Um, yeah. You know that that we have lived through, that we've that we've researched, that we've studied what other people have lived through. It's like the parables of Jesus, right? These are fictional stories that Jesus is telling the crowd, but they're based on practical, everyday, earthly experiences that that crowd can relate to. And then Jesus imbues these parables with heavenly eternal principles that are take you know, th- these are the takeaway, uh, the takeaway lessons that the, that those, those, that that audience could, could hear and understand. And there have been stories of redemption throughout all human history in all the great poems and, and, and epic stories that have been told throughout history. They're all the same stories. They're all the same threads that are being plucked, you know, like the, they're, they're like violin strings that run through our lives, our souls, no matter where we come from, what culture, what epic we come from, these violin strings, when you pluck them, they reverberate to themes. Hmm. And these themes are consistent throughout all of human history. Themes like forgiveness sacrifice, redemption, uh, community, courage, nobility. These things you find in all the great stories in human history, whether they're from some pagan culture or, 
or a Christian or, or Judeo-Christian, you know, it doesn't matter. They all have the same themes running through them. And by the way, most of the stories that we read, most of the novels that are written, most of the films that we go watch or the TV shows have these themes recurring over and over and over again. There are resurrections that have happened throughout history in storytelling. Sure. The epi- in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there was a resurrection. That was a thousand years or more before the Jesus story, right? People are starved to death for these themes because they're like food. Story is food. It's nourishment for our soul. It's how we nourish our souls is through story. And the, the themes keep coming back again. Last time I checked, E.T. was resurrected. <laughs> Neo. Neo yeah. was resurrected from the Matrix. Harry Potter was resurrected. These are these resurrection and redemption and rebirth, right, happen in storytelling for all of human history. And they keep recurring even in modern story. Even in our modern conventions of story, they keep showing up because we are wired. Mankind is wired for these themes. When I was writing my book, uh, Troubleshooting Your Novel, I got thinking about this idea of themes and truth and stories that we tell in redemption. And I remember coming to the understanding that that a story will always present, I think this is similar to what you were saying, a worldview. Um, and a worldview about redemption will come through. And there's three, one, uh, th- there's three of them that might come through. One is that redemption is not necessary. One is mm-hmm. that redemption is necessary, but it's not available. And then one, mm-hmm. that redemption is necessary and is available. And so, for example, if you were writing about incest, your, your story might come across to say that you know, since incest has happened in the past uh, and some cultures accept it, that redemption or forgiveness is not necessary. But I don't think that most people would agree with that. Like, if that was your story, I have the sense that a lot of people would be like, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true to me, that doesn't ring right to me. Um, right. On the other hand, you might, right. you might present it as, yes, redemption is necessary, but it's not available. That that wrong is so deep that that grief goes so so far that you can never be forgiven for that. And that might be more of a cynical kind of a, a point of view. And again, that's not the story that we really want to hear. We want to hear a story that that redemption is necessary, and that would deal with the morality of what you're talking about, but also yes. that redemption is available, that hope is available. And all of these stories that you mentioned with the resurrections, it's, it seems to me that they're basically saying redemption is necessary, and guess what? It's also available. And that brings us right. to that moment of hope. Right. That's great. Great analysis. Yeah, redemption is necessary and possible. And yeah, it is possible, right? Yeah. Now let's yeah, say, yeah, when that. someone's when someone's writing a script, whether or not it has any spiritual overtones, it's probably going to deal with some of these big questions. And what would you say are some of the keys to telling a story that audiences will really connect with and remember? I mean, you've mentioned some of them, I think already, telling a story of excellence and telling a story that deals with big questions that we all ask. Are there other things that you think of that are going through your mind when you're writing? your stories to say, I want audiences to really relate to this. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this metric that Hollywood uses now. They call they call these big movies 
four quadrant movies. And what that means is that sort of divide the box up into 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 quarters, right? Into four into four into equal pieces, and you have audiences in each of those categories. You might have you know male and female. You might have teenagers and old folks. You might have uh, children and and uh, parents. You know, the idea is to try to get your film to fire on all quadrants if you can, or your story to fire on all right. quadrants if you can. Because the challenge for all of us, and you feel, I know you feel this in, in, in your work, is the world is so noisy right now. And we're, we're being, you know, uh, partitioned off into these tiny, tiny little niches or subgroups that the uh, it's hard to get on people's radar screens with your project, yeah. right? How do you how do you get past all the noise? And, and at the same time, we have YouTube and, and and self publishing and this whole sort of world of do it yourself, right? Well, guess what? That's wonderful. It's democratic. Anybody and everybody can make a movie or write a book, right? Yeah. In, in a way, that's very power, a very powerful democracy. But it also means it's louder and more cluttered and noisier for all of us, right? To try to get our to try to get our our, our story out there, to try to get exposure to the broadest possible audience we can, and so. I'm always asking myself, how do I make this story uh, acceptable, palatable to as many different audience members as possible? You know, my goal is not to try to hit a niche. My goal is to try to hit the broadest possible audience I can. I want yeah. as many eyeballs on my work as I can, right? That means that it, that whatever story I'm telling is going to reach more souls, that, that story food is going to be, provide nutrition for more souls, the more eyeballs that are on it. And the more, in your case, the more readers that you have. So the challenge then is, you know, on e every story, you know, the story may sort of necessarily, gra you know, be more focused on one specific audience. My goal is to broaden it as much as I can to make it more universal, to make it more pleasing to as many people as possible. Because what's the point of reaching a tiny little niche? Uh, it, it, that becomes like a ghetto that you live in, right? As opposed to trying to do something that can bless and entertain the masses. So that's one of the biggest challenges of every story that I tell is how, how, do, how, do, how do we make this for everybody, right? How do we have characters in these stories that will, that will, um, that will, you know, uh, that the audience can ride the coattails of into the storyline and, yeah, and identify so, with and believe in? Exactly, exactly. And then I, I also, one for me at least is, what's the big meta narrative? What's the big, you know for lack of a better term, what's the message <laughs> that Samuel Goldwyn told me not to, not to try to, to communicate, but that I know every project communicates no matter what. What is that meta narrative? Like your analogy of, of redemption, right? Is right. And resurrection. Is, is it, is, is it, 
Is it necessary? Is it possible? Is it available? Is it not available? You know, that's a powerful idea to communicate into, you know, into the, into the world of storytelling. And so I'm always looking for something like that. Um, in, in the, in the case for Christ, for example, there's a, an amazing quote by C.S. Lewis, who is many of your listeners and, and readers know, you know, was the father of the Narnia series. Yeah, right? Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis himself was a skeptic and an atheist who went on a deep dive into the evidence and discovered at the end of the day that there was too much there not to not to believe. And he had a very similar experience to the protagonist in my film, Lee Strobel. And Lewis said this. He said, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important than Christianity in the entire universe. And that idea resonated with me in such a powerful way personally that I said, okay, well, that's, that's the premise of my movie, right? I have to communicate that somehow in, in the course of this movie. And that, so we are all looking for, I think, as writers, you know, what is the takeaway? What is the one thing I want the audience to walk away from this experience with? And what is the deep probing question that, this movie or this story is going to answer, you know, and it doesn't have to be complex. It can be one simple question that you get to the bottom of by the end of the story. But if the, if the protagonist going on this journey, if the hero going on this quest is asked a question at the beginning of the story, whatever the resolution of the movie is, has to be the answer to that question, right? Or you've not accomplished the job of the story in my, in my humble opinion. So beyond broadening the audience, finding ways to be universal with the, with the storytelling for as many people as possible. I'm asking myself that big question. What's the answer to the question? The, the, the story asks a giant question. I need to find an answer to that question. I like how you're talking about it in terms of questions. Like when I think about the stories that I'm writing, the novels that I'm writing, instead of starting with a message I'm trying to get across or a theme, I feel like right. if I start with a theme or a message, then it becomes just an almost an anecdote or something where it's like you're just trying to teach something and becomes message-driven. And since what mm-hmm. lies at the heart of drama is tension, it doesn't have that right. tension it because it's, it's just an answer that you're giving. So I always right. work from a dilemma or a question, you know, for one of my books that was the question of what's more important, protecting the truth, pr- protecting the innocent or telling the truth. So mm-hmm. like some people might say, well, you, you know, you should tell the truth. Okay, well, that's fine. Or you should protect the innocent. Okay, that's fine. But what if you right. have to choose between them? Well, then you have dilemma, then you have drama. And that's yes. where... That's where I like to, you know, take my stories. And for me, it's always a journey. If I know the answer before I start a book, I usually won't write that that story because I right. don't, don't want to spend a year of my life asking a question I already know the answer to. I thought, I really don't know what's more important, telling the truth or protecting the innocent, and how do you draw the line, and when do you draw the line. And 
You know, one of my yes. books, one of my books, dealt with the Jonestown massacre back in the 1970s, mm. and uh, this was my first novel, actually, The Pawn. Um, and I tracked mm. down one of the three people who was still alive today who'd walked out of Jonestown and survived. And wow. I asked him what it was like to be that there that day, and he told me that his his son was there, his 18-month-old, and his wife was there, and basically everyone that he knew. And they were lining up, and, and Jim Jones was saying, give the children the medication. And, and he saw what was happening, and, and so this, this man that I spoke with, he, he, said, I knew, he said, I knew I had to get out of there. Um, wow. And so he turned to Jim Jones. He was one of his chief lieutenants, and he said, I'll take the money uh, that we have to the um, Russian embassy in, in uh, Georgetown, which was which there was some connections to communism and so on. But but anyway, there right. was a so there's a suitcase with about a million dollars cash, and Jim Jones turned, and then this guy I was speaking with said, "I've never seen a look of pure evil before," but he looked at me and he said, "Would you do your son first? And oh, so gosh. this gentleman I was speaking with said, "All right, I will," even though he wasn't planning to. And he took the money, he went to the pavilion, but his wife had just squirted cyanide down, down uh, his son's throat, and so he held his wife as she died, because she had oh. just taken some of the, the cyanide, and and uh, he snuck out, took the money, threw threw it into the jungle, and just ran for his life to get away. Unbelievable. And, yeah, and the you know the the question for me was not like were these people wrong or what, I don't know whatever something like that, but what right. makes me different from those who do the unthinkable? And that was the question mm-hmm. that drove my first novel. What makes me different from those who might kill or rape or those who come to the point of where they think the most loving thing they can do is squirt cyanide on the throat of their child? I mean, right. how do you get to that place? And is there something different about some people that would do that and so to me again that's an interesting question an interesting dilemma yes. what makes me different from those it isn't it isn't based on some sort of answer that I'm better than anyone else because I'm not saying that I am what would I have done that day I mean that's a right. difficult question so 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 for me I like to frame it in terms of a dilemma or a question instead of a message I'm trying to get across and right. it sounds like you sort of do the same thing as you develop Absolutely. your story. Yeah. yeah, because you're also going to discover the answer, right, to that question as, as you, you work through the story. As you explore and, yeah, work through the story, explore the character, let the character sort of uncover the answer for himself or herself. Absolutely. It's a great, you know, every story needs to ask a giant question that somehow gets answered at the end of the story and how you get to the answer is where the, the intrigue and the suspense and the interest of the story line goes, right? Because yeah. you as the writer are writing yourself into corners that you personally don't know how to get out of. Right. I love it, yeah. And as writers, if we, if we write ourselves into corners that we personally know how to get out of, then it's too easy. But we need to actually put ourselves in jeopardy as the writer and say, this is impossible. I can't escape this. If, <laughs> if, if this was me, I could never escape this, right? That's the best way to go. That's the best corner to put yourself in because then you will find the answer by digging deeper, by getting more clever, by using your you know, intellect or your, or your desperation or whatever to find the way out of that corner. 
And I just find that to be the best kind of storytelling. You will get your answer, but it may come in unexpected and unpredictable ways. And that, to me, is one of the most exciting aspects of storytelling. Uh, uh, you know, for a writer, it's a little bit self-absorbed for us as writers to, to go through this journey first before the readers or the audience get to experience it. But it's it's uh, it's the it's what we're made to do. It's what writers are made to do, uh, and it distinguishes good writing from bad writing. If 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 we don't put ourselves in that jeopardy as writers, then it it'll be too easy, and and the readers will say that's not very satisfying. So um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, good good stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting answers. because. Because uh, uh, very often people will warn you, oh, you don't want to write yourself into a corner. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking the the best ideas I've always I've gotten over the years have been when I was in the corner, when I had no idea yeah. how to solve it. And that's where the best ideas are, are found. And I think why should we warn potential, uh, you know, aspiring writers away from going to the place where the best ideas can be found? So, but that's what right. happens. Yeah. Now, That's when right. you teach Absolutely. your screenwriting courses, um, what, what are some of the com- common problems that you see popping up with aspiring writers these days? Um, well, here, here's the thing, and this is the, this is the difference that I know you understand because you've written, you know, for film and TV along with your, your novel, your, you know, your, your fictional novels. But um, the the real challenge for most of the sort of aspiring writers that I, that I've worked with is that they don't know the difference between show and tell, right? Mm. The, the, which is huge. Even I believe for novelists as well, yeah. to, to, to show more and tell less. The, the, the thing about screenplay specifically is that they need to read like novels. So when you're, when you're writing a screenplay, you need for that screenplay to just just scream off the page to the to the reader. This is a movie that needs to be made, right? It has to be an exciting read. It has to be feel liter- literary in a way. Uh, it, it has to be literate, but it has to be literary in, in in a way that a novel does. The, but the difference between a screenplay and, and a novel is that. When you're writing a novel in, in an omniscient point of view, you can read everybody's minds, yeah. right? As the as the storyteller, you can re, you can get inside the head of every character in in your novel, and you can go for pages. You can go for fifteen pages inside somebody's head if you want, right? Doesn't work that way. Yeah. There's no <laughs> right. There's only a few superpowers that screenwriters have. Voiceover and flashbacks or dreams. Sure. Very few other superpowers beyond that, like you might have the ability to do in in a, in a novel. And we and you have and you have to use those superpowers very sparingly. You can't OD on those things. So that's one of the biggest things that I tell, especially novelists who come to my my lectures or my classes. Uh, you don't get to cheat in a screenplay. And what I mean by cheat, you don't get to, you don't get to go inside somebody's head for 15 pages. It's not allowed because that what's on the interior has to be on the exterior. 
So in scene description, for instance, there's so many times I'm, I'm reading new writers and they're giving me uh, all of this inside baseball information about the character right. that I'm not seeing, that I'm not seeing on the screen, right? It's a, it's a close-up of, of a, a character and they're telling me all of this interior backstory of this character, but I'm looking at a face in that screenplay. How am I supposed to read all of that, you know, all of that inside baseball on that, on what I'm seeing. So, you know, getting, moving from being able to tell the interior to having to show it on the outside to show through action or through, you know, clever uses of exposition, you know, exposition is one of the hardest things to do in, in movie, uh, in screenwriting. Getting backstory into the, into the script is one of the trickiest things to do because people talking to each other who know each other, they don't need a lecture on what that, on what the other person's been up to for the last couple right, years. Right, right. Right? So they know it already. But the audience does it, and the audience needs to. And so that's the trickiest way is to figure out a way to smuggle the cargo in to the story um, in clever ways. Uh, so there's, there's many, you know, many rookie mistakes that, you know, aspiring screenwriters make that, you know, can be course corrected. And I wish I would have had access to some of the great training and teaching when I was first starting because I just had to learn by trial and error. Uh, 30 years ago when I started, you know, doing this. And um, now I feel, you know, like it's second nature to me. And if I were to try to write a novel, it would be really tough for me because I'm so used to showing and, 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 and not just telling uh, through screenplays that I, that I would probably get lost in the interior of someone's mind and not know how to carry that out. Uh, it would be a great challenge to take sometimes. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> so like, well, I'm so blown away by you know writers like you who who can create this matrix, this Rubik's cube uh, in a novel um, for 350 pages, and you know it just uh, I, I my hands are sweating right now even thinking. About it. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but um, but. So I have to ask, are there any films that you have seen that that maybe were paramount in your life, uh, you know, game changers? Maybe you saw a film and you said, this inspired or impacted me. This really what was something that really spoke to me. Are there any that yeah. um, that come to mind, pop to mind? Yeah, a bunch. Um, but I'll, I'll just kind of give you a few. Um, the movie The Mission. Oh yeah. Uh, by Academy Award winning screenwriter Robert Bolt and director Roland Joffe with Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro, um, Liam Neeson. I mean, it's got a really powerful cast, but it's a very powerful story about um, the church in South America in the 1800s uh, at a time when, uh, well, 17 and 1800s at a time when. Uh, the, 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 the Jesuits were trying to, to establish a mission above the falls, um, with, with really remote tribes people and were fighting off 
the government policy of allowing slave trading of those very natives and were sometimes seen as complicit with with the Spanish government in allowing slave trading. And just powerful story of personal redemption for a slave trader played by Robert De Niro. And it's got one of the most moving uh, depictions of the cross <laughs> of Jesus in it that is so organic and so beautifully woven that uh, I've never seen another depiction of the redemption of the Christian story uh, in, in, in a more beautiful way. The Mission, great movie, not to be missed by anybody, powerful. Um, a beautiful movie that won the Academy Award in 1989 called Cinema Paradiso. Oh, yeah. It's an Italian, Italian film about the power of story and film to transcend, that transcends history in our lives and uh, set in World War II in a small town in Italy. Uh, and it's, in fact, I think Sicily. And um, about the, uh, it's a love story of an old film projectionist and a little boy whose father is killed in the war and this lifelong friendship that they had centered around movies <laughs> and the movies that would be brought to town to, to show to the, to the community in the, in the one movie hall. And um, it's a gorgeous film, uh, one of my all-time favorites. So those are two. And then, yeah, uh, those, that's uh, great, yeah. Uh, another one that I just absolutely love, made by David Lynch, that is an odd, true story um, called The Straight Story. Huh. And it's a powerful story about two brothers who are estranged, and near the end of his life, one of the brothers who can no longer drive a car um, because he's had his license taken away for bad eyesight and so forth, um, yeah. realizes his brother is dying and lives across the state uh, in another state, lives the whole state away. And this, uh, this brother can't get there but he needs to reconcile with him before his brother dies. And so he rides a riding lawnmower across the oh, state yeah. to get there. It's such a moving, powerful, true story. This happened. Uh, and David Lynch directed it. It's one of the most powerful um, reconciliation stories I've ever, I've ever seen. Um, so the straight story. I love those three films. Well, Brian, this has been a, a really good conversation. I, I love your thoughts about themes and questions, and just it's neat to hear you just expound on some of the things that I've you know I've heard you mention in the past, but to take us a little bit deeper. And I'm sure our listeners really appreciate that. And I want to encourage them to go check out your movie, The Case for Christ, and also your show, and Calls the Heart. And maybe who knows? Maybe they'll become Hardies as well. <laughs> and, um, Happy to have them. <laughs> And um, let's say that um, let's say someone maybe isn't familiar with the best place to reach you online. Where would where would be the best place to connect with your show or with you? Is it Twitter or Facebook or your website? Yeah, yeah. They, I'm uh, my my blog is uh, brianberg.net. That's easy to find. Um, we have a Hardy's page for one calls the heart that is 
got about a hundred thousand people hanging out every day <laughs> on it. Wow. Um, and that's, that's on Facebook. That's called, uh, fans of Hallmark's When Calls the Heart. Fans of Hallmark's When Calls the Heart. And then I am, uh, on Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. My handle is at BRBird, B-I-R-D, at BRBird. Well, it was great having you as a guest today, and I hope people will check out your work. And um, also, for information about my um, my writing, my books, you can go to stephenjames.net. And for more of our guests and more broadcasts and podcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.